Amen. Amen. I hope you all realize what you have here. Amen. I, I travel probably three or four different churches every single month. And I turned to this beautiful young lady over here on the front row and I said, is it always like this? And she kind of looked at me and says, yeah, pretty much. I, I hope you realize what you have here. Amen. There is such a wonderful, wonderful spirit of God that is in this sanctuary that you do not want to take for granted. You do not want to assume it's just going to always be here, but when the Lord is in the house and you're in the house, you need to lift him up and appreciate and love him and what's going on. Amen in this church. Amen. Amen. I was telling your pastor from the moment I walked in the door, it just felt so good. People were welcoming and kind, and uh, just there was a great, great atmosphere here. And so uh, I love being here and excited and totally honored uh, for the invitation. You may be seated. Go ahead and sit down. Um, this probably isn't going to be your traditional uh, Pentecostal or apostolic message, whatever you prefer, but I, I figured I'd introduce myself a little bit. My, uh, I kind of have a very untraditional upbringing in the sense that when I was younger, um, my father was a drug addict and an alcoholic and grew up in that kind of lifestyle, grew up with just that chaos in the home, I, I consider myself, my mom's Hispanic, my dad's white. I look totally Hispanic, don't I? Why do you laugh? Is that funny? Uh, but my mom got her, her little bit in there when she named me my middle name, Emmanuel. So Jason Emmanuel Carr. It really rhymes, doesn't it? It goes smooth, slowly. Uh, and so I consider myself recovering PWT. Recovering poor white trash. Grew up right outside of what's the, considered the vadio section of the town where all the Hispanics hung out. And so I was the token white boy that hung out with all the Hispanics, you know, Joker and Flacco and, and uh, all those different guys. And so kind of grew up in that lifestyle. And all of a sudden, at about 15 years old, my dad decides he's tired of this life. I grew up with... Uh, I don't think I had a sober New Year's Eve since I was five years old. Every New Year's Eve, my parents would allow me to drink with them and, and get drunk. I expressly remember getting stoned about five or six years old for the first time. And so there was a, 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 just a real kind of crazy lifestyle I grew up in. And um, so at 15 years old, all of a sudden, my dad decides he wants to change this. Our neighbor started witnessing to him. And our neighbor was this apostolic guy who went to church, and so he took us to a Spanish apostolic church. How many of you know what a Spanish apostolic church is? Okay. For those of you who don't, it's a predominantly Spanish-speaking version of what you just experienced this morning. Okay. So here I am, this Spanish-looking guy, shows up at an apostolic church, and it's a small little church, probably about the size of this middle section right here, and they get to bump in the music, you know, and, and in the Spanish apostolic churches, it's always just that fast, and people start running the aisles like what happened this morning. I looked at my dad. I said, Dad, I thought you said you wanted to change your life. I said, these people have got to be on drugs. I mean, who runs in church? And it was just so, like, odd and shocking to me that when we, we got into this thing and, 
and, and we went to a, uh, a church, apostolic church in, in Redlands. And uh, my first Sunday at church, I, I met the Labus brothers in the parking lot. Because I was the only white-looking guy at church. I tried to convince them I was half Mexican, but it didn't work. So I remember fighting the youngest brother. And I beat the tar out of him. It was so cool. I just, I pummeled him. Well, that's when I learned this concept. You pick on one bean, you got to fight the whole burrito. That's when his older brother proceeded to beat the tar out of me. So that was my introduction to church. I became a soul winner real quick just for survival. I started bringing my friends to church. Man, you got to help me out, brother. This dude just beat me down. So after I brought enough guys to where we beat up the Lavis brothers, I, I kind of like church. That was my introduction. And, and had just this kind of rough transition into this thing we call the church. And, and, I, and, I, and I say all that just to let you know, because I have letters after my name or because I stand up on the platform and I stand here in a nice black suit with a white shirt and look fairly conservative and nice, there's a whole history behind everything you see right here. And behind everything I see right there is an entire history that's probably completely different than what the exterior represents. And, and there's a, a, a life that's years of life that have been lived. I remember uh, my son, there's this kid at our church, and, and he always picks on my son. And, and my son's nine years old and probably started when he was about six years old. And, and, and everything in me just wanted to tell my son, Boston, next time he walks up to you, just haul back and bust them. Bow! Because that's what would have worked for me as a kid. My mom, in fact, my mom told me, if you ever pick a fight, I'm whipping your rear. If you ever run away from a fight, I'm whipping your rear. So if somebody picked a fight with me, I was doomed either way. At least I was more worried about my mom than I was them. And that's what I want to tell them. Here I am, I'm the assistant pastor, marriage family therapist, got all kinds of education and degrees and and been in ministry for 15, 20 years, and, and, and the response in me is when that kid comes up, Boston, just sock him right in the chops. That's what he needs. And he'll leave you alone. And my wife was looking at me like, I can't believe you just told him that. And I was like, well, babe, it works. But that really isn't the right response. I, 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 it, that's that's the, the, the old man in me. That, that's my nature, is to always try to filter things and decipher things from where I came from, what I used to be, regardless of, of how much more Bible I know nowadays, how many uh, certificates I have on the wall and educations and degrees, and I think I got about seven or eight degrees up on my wall with certificates and all kinds of stuff, that doesn't change what's on the inside of me. It doesn't change what happened when I was five years old. It doesn't change what happened when I, I, I saw my father, father and mother throwing stuff across the house at one another. Then it changed the first two years of my marriage where I, I married this fourth-generation Pentecostal girl who was upper-middle class. Poor girl had never had a Spam, Taco Bell, Del Taco. She just lived a really depressed life. So I had to introduce her to the finer things in life, you know. We have Spam in our cupboard today. In the first two years of our marriage, it was chaos. 
severe chaos. Uh, got involved in ministry. I just stayed in the church. I met, I met people in the church that I loved and, and liked. You know, I, I got to tell you this. And I want to encourage you to continue doing what you're doing here. As a kid that got drugged in the church, I loved and liked the people of God a whole lot longer before I loved their God. But it was my appreciation of them that caused me to fall in love with their God. You're doing the right thing. Amen. Amen. And it's almost about a year and a half, I remember what it was like to sit in the pastor's office and wonder whether or not I'd still be married a month, two months from now. Just frustration. The person that I thought I loved, I, I was disgusted with, and I knew she was disgusted at me because she'd tell me all the time. And, uh, and so that was all of, of what's behind the facade of, of what you see today. So I don't want you to sit there and think, man, this guy has it all together, and, and he's going to sit there and, and tell us how to fix our lives and our marriages. Because you know what? I got to honestly look at, at most of you and say, I don't know, but I know someone who does. I know someone who does. And I know someone who can help lead you and guide you. The Bible says if any man lacks wisdom, any woman lacks wisdom, let him ask and God will give liberally. So there's a difference between what you see and what's actually there. And that kind of goes into my, my message this morning behind the symptoms. You know, there's always symptoms that are the, the, the forefront of what's actually wrong on the inside. And there's a difference between a symptom and a cause. There's a big difference between what is a symptom and what's the cause. I had to start my timer here so I don't keep you guys here all afternoon. I'd say you got to beat the Baptists, but, you know, we started late, so you need to wait for them to get out before you go to lunch. There's a difference between symptoms and causes. On September 20th, 2003, Lisa Strong was at her job at the mall. And all of a sudden, she had a sharp pain in her back, and she could barely walk. She went home from work, and there she was at home, and struggling with the pain as the pain got more intense. She, 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 her fever spiked to about 106 degrees, and at that point, she decided, man, I better go to the hospital and go to the ER and see what's wrong with me. And, and there as she went to the hospital in the emergency room. She was complaining about the pain, this intense pain that she was dealing with. And through a series of mistakes, miscommunications, and a misdiagnosis, the misdiagnosis set off a downward spiral that really triggered a life-threatening infection and septic shock in Lisa's body. The septic shock began to starve her extremities of the necessary blood that it needed. There, her fingers and her, and her toes turned black as this line of, of dead flesh crept up her arms and her legs. There, Lisa said, she said, I figured if I, I shook my hands and, and maybe moved enough and did what I could to try to get the blood flow to back to my extremities that it would be okay, but it seemed like it was like, a, it seemed like it was just frostbite, and it just inched its way up my fingers into my hands and into my forearm. A month after she went to the hospital, doctors amputated her legs below the knees. Three days later, they amputated both arms just below the elbow. The original untreated and misdiagnosis that Lisa had was a kidney stone. A kidney stone. She said, I told the nurse I thought it might be a kidney stone because I had one a long time ago. But you see, a misdiagnosis of your problem could be a, a life-changing or possibly even a deadly 
not just in the physical arena, but also in the emotional and spiritual arena of your life. You know, most people represent their symptoms as the cause of their problem. Man, my, my nose just won't stop running. I got this runny nose, and, and you're walking around all day with tissue, and, you know, and if you're not really polite, you walk around going... Or worse yet, you spit it out. Oftentimes, that's just a symptom of what? Possibly an allergy. You take care of the allergy, and you'll stop looking like a slob walking around all day long. People will, will say, I've got this horrible cough, and, and that may just be the symptom of a bronchial infection. People will tell me all the time, I, uh, my depression is so bad, it's causing bad relationships and poor work performance. And their depression is the problem. No, sir, ma'am, your problem is not depression. Your problem is probably something more like lack of hope. People have bipolar disorder where they're up and down emotionally. Man, one minute they're just flying high and they're worshiping and loving God, and the next time you see them at church, it's like, oh. And they're bipolar, they're up and down and just all over the place. And they say that's their problem. Well, honestly, probably the really problem is just lack of their own personal control that started way back when they were a kid. Parents not being able to discipline them and help them and add structure to their life. You see, it's human nature to look for something or someone else to blame for our problems. Because if, if I have somebody else or someone else to blame for my problems then the problem is theirs. And it doesn't require me to take responsibility and do the hard work of change that's necessary. Because if I'm the problem, who can fix me? Only me. I, I've got to work on me. I've I, I got to have the Spirit help me work on me. I get people in my office all the time that talk about their symptoms. They can't work because they're so depressed. They can't function in school because of ADHD or ADD. Anxiety is so high they can't fulfill their daily functions of the job and roles in life. They can't be happy because of this issue or that issue. You know, some of the funnest ones are married couples. I get married couples in my office all the time. And the problem is always them. He's doing this. She's doing that. And they'll sit there and they'll, they'll run one another down and talk bad about what they're doing, what, how he's neglecting her because she's rejecting him and she's rejecting him because he's neglecting her. And it's like the dog chasing its tail. Never catches up. She's blaming the lack of, of physical intimacy with him because of his pornography problem and he's blaming his pornography problem on the fact of, of the lack of physical intimacy from her. They're chasing one another around with their problems. Blaming one another, and it's always the other spouse's fault. You know, prescriptions of antidepressants are literally at all-time highs in America. Right now, approximately one in every ten adults over the age of 12 take antidepressants, according to an October 2011 Center for Disease Control study. Women are two and a half times more likely to take antidepressants than men. People over 40, yeah, I just joined that crowd. Are, are, are five times more likely to take antidepressants than younger people, and whites are more likely to take antidepressants than minorities. Minorities just say, hey, dude, just get over it. Right? Don't you, be, don't, be, don't you be tripping with your bad attitude with me. You better straighten it out right now, or I'll straighten it out for you. 
Come on now. Half of me's there. Come on. The rate of antidepressant use has skyrocketed nearly 400% in America. And research proves, research by these drug companies that sell these drugs, it's amazing. They did a huge research study. They got thousands of people who were depressed and anxious and, and having all kinds of emotional problems. They put them through this research where there was four groups, one that did nothing, one that uh, took medication, one that went to therapy, and one that did physical exercise three times a week for 30 minutes. By far and above all the rest, after three or four months of, of this research, the most effective group was physical exercise and diet. The second most effective group was those that went to therapy. And they didn't know whether it was the therapy that worked or if it was the fact that 85% of the therapists had the clients go out and do exercise three times a week for 30 minutes. The third most effective result was nothing. Had better results than taking medication. So the results got pushed down. Unfortunately, these drug companies had paid uh, a leading university to, to promote and do the study. So they'd already paid for it. So, of course, it was coming out. But they don't tell us that, that, that the number one thing for you to do is change something in your life, not pop a pill. You to, you to get off your hind end and actually get involved in something. You say you don't have enough time to exercise? All you got to do is come to church and worship for the first 30 minutes. It will help you physically and spiritually. And you got to come to this church, though. You can't do that at the Catholic church or the Protestant church or the Methodist church. So there's one time for 30 minutes right there. You just find the other two. SSRIs or these, these medications were never created. Their original design, when they were created by their, their makers, were never created to treat the cause of depression, anxiety, stress, or, or the pressure you feel of being overwhelmed. They were created to treat the symptoms. They were created to put this, to keep you from having that really low, low, or that really high, high. And so that's what they were created for. They were created to treat the symptoms so that you could pick yourself up and go find somebody like a therapist or a pastor or accountability person and say, hey, I've got an issue. i got a problem that I need to work out because uh, I've got something treating the symptom right now, but I know once I get rid of the pill, once the symptom goes away, i still got the problem down inside of me, and I need to deal with something. I need you, and I need God, and I need me to start working on what's going on inside of me. The problem is, most of you don't have somebody that's friend enough to help you out through that. Therefore, it becomes cheaper to just give you a pill three times a day for the rest of your life. And after three or four years, they have to increase the dosage. Then after two more years of that, they've got to give you another pill to fight the side effects of the pill that you were taking to fight the symptoms. I've had young people as young as 15 years old in my office that were taking five different psychotropic medications, and three of them were to fight the side effects of the two that they were using to fight the depression. One of the number one things that antidepressants do in adolescents is give them suicidal thoughts. Well, it works real good, doesn't it? So we don't realize these things. We're, we're, we're a society that is so caught up into treating symptoms because symptoms are so much easier to treat than the actual problem. 
my daughter, unfortunately, takes after her dad, and she gets sinus infections. And she, she hates doing what I know is going to treat the problem. I know this may sound gross, but I get one of those nasal flushes. I fill it up with saline water, and I just, you know, and shoot that thing up there and wash my nasals out and clean it out. My daughter's like, I am not doing that. She's this dainty, pretty little 13-year-old. Actually, she's not little. She's as tall as her mom now. And that scares me. But she'll treat the symptoms for weeks and end up having to go to the doctor, to the ER, because she's so packed up and congested she can't hear and she can't keep her equilibrium right. Then she's got to do what he, the, the thing I said to do in the first place. As a society, we'd rather treat symptoms than actually deal with the problem. See, because dealing with the problem requires that I, I look right here first. You know, for all the goofy and crazy dumb things that Michael Jackson said, one thing he did get right, I'm starting with the man in the mirror. Everything else was completely obvious. Here I am preaching about Michael Jackson. Hallelujah. Can I simply tell some of you today, what you're blaming as a problem in your life might not really be the problem. What your excuse is is just an excuse for something you're not really willing to invest the time and the effort in to change and correct in your life. I'm not saying that you have some kind of deep hidden trauma down back years in your life, you know, years ago that you have to deal with. All all the research on that repressed memory syndrome and all that junk was proven 100% to be inaccurate. It, It was just a fad. Nobody has repressed memories. You know what's happened to you. You know when you've been taken advantage of. You know when you've been hurt. You know when, when people that you should have trusted and held on to and held close and, and protected you, you know when they violated you and took you for granted. And you remember that. That's not something you forget. Now, I'm not going to assume that you sit here this morning and, and as I talk about symptoms and, and as I talk about deeper root issues, you don't know what I'm talking about. You know. Every single one of you know. Most of you know what the deeper problem is. Luke chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus, it's the story of Jesus there that is sitting inside the house. And it came to pass on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by which were come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. The religious people of the day were the ones who were surrounding Jesus in that house. Some people believe it might have been Peter's house that day as, as they were sitting there. They gathered around and it was the, the doctors and the lawyers of the law that were sitting there around him who at times and other times we look at, they're there and they're asking him questions and they're, they're, they're trying to set him up and they're trying to trip him up with their questions. And, and the Bible says in Luke, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Jesus desired to do a miracle in the midst of those doctors and those lawyers that were there that, 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 that questioned him and doubted him. He wanted to do something in their life. Jesus was interested in touching them, but, and, and God takes intense interest in people that show up. God takes an intense interest uh, regardless of what your motives are. As long as you show up, you got to realize that, that there is a power and a desire of God here this morning to do a work in your life uh, that is unprecedented, uh, that is beyond anything you've ever experienced. Uh, why? Just because. 
because you're in the house, just because you came this morning and you said, I want to check this out. God says, I want to touch you. The power was there just like it is here right now, just like we felt all throughout this service. The power of God was here. You didn't need a preacher to get up behind this pulpit and begin to talk to you and preach to you so that you could feel the power of God. All you needed to do was just push past your old carnal flesh and say, God, I want to touch you. I'm here this morning because I need you. I ask everybody this question. If you could have changed your life by doing what you've always done, why are you still doing what you've always done and not getting the results to change you? Because what you're doing is not working. What you're doing is not working. Why don't you just say, okay, I, I don't have all the answers. God, I open my mind up right now. I open up my spirit right now. I want you to close your eyes right now because I feel like we need to pray that God would open up every mind and every heart right now. He, he, he said an atmosphere here earlier in this service that began to open up hearts and minds. Uh, but there's some of you right now, you're still questioning and doubting. Uh, all I want you to do right now is say, God, uh, the things I've done in my life have not worked up to this point, God. But Lord, right now I'm giving you this opportunity, Lord, to work on me. Give me some direction and guidance that may help me deal with me, God, and the problems of my life. Touch this mind, oh God. Touch this soul, God. I open myself up for you in this place because you are here. There, the Bible, as we go through our story, the conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees and the doctors as they're sitting in Peter's house that day is interrupted by what we know of as four men carrying a paralytic man on his bed. There, these men desired and brought the man on the mat hoping to get him to Jesus. But there is, they brought their friend that day. They get to the door, and there's so many people that are there, they can't get him in. And I can see him that day. Sir, can you, you excuse me? I, I got I to gotta get my friend in. He's got a problem. He, he's got an issue. We need to get him into the master. And I can hear them say, hey, Bubba, everybody's got issues. Everybody's got problems. Why don't you just wait your turn? Everybody's trying to get down before him so they can get touched and healed. Unfortunately, except for all those that were already in there. I can see the Bible, or, or, or theologians say and, and historians say that if it's a typical Palestinian dwelling, the house probably had a set of stairs on the outside that led to the top, which was a flat roof. And there it was made of, of a composite of grass and, and clay and tiles and lath. And there these men had a determination inside of them. I, hey, you, you ain't going to let us through. We're going to find a way through. You're not going to let us in. We're going to find a way to get our friend into that house. And they walk up and they start tearing the roof off where they see Jesus is going to be at. And they, they get an opening. And I can see Jesus sitting there and, and stuff starting to fall down on people. You know, the roof's coming in. I can imagine what Peter was like. Peter's like, bro, someone is going to die. If somebody started ripping the, the roof off of your house, that'd be your exact same response. And, and, and as, as, the, as the light begins to break in and, and, and stuff begins to fall and they finally get a big enough open, I can wonder what it was like to see the first guy pick his head through. Yeah, we got the right spot. And they keep pulling it back and they lower that lame man down in front of Jesus. Jesus didn't rebuke him for interrupting his teaching that day. He, he viewed the determined effort of the four as a visible evidence 
of their faith and his power to heal that man. I can imagine what he must have been like sitting there. I'm here this morning and I want to touch somebody. I want to heal somebody. And there's nobody in this place that's willing to let me touch them. My power is here to heal them. And someone starts breaking open the roof and the person up there is wanting him more than the people out there. He's like, oh, come on down. Bring it on down because I want to do a work in this place so I can show off my power and my healing. He saw their faith, and he saw the man. And when they lowered this, I, I can just imagine what it was like. It was a mat the man was on. And as they lowered him down, he, it must have been like this crippled ball that was crumpled up in this mat. They probably used some of the ropes for fishing that Peter had laying up on top of the house, drying out. As they lowered him down, and he got there before Jesus in this crumpled mess. And the people with expectation looked upon the man. Oh, I wonder what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going is to heal him. Jesus, it's evident that Jesus is, is going to heal the man. He's going to reach out and touch him. And Jesus there, when he sees the faith of those four, he looks at that man and he says, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. I wonder if there were those in the crowd that day that thought, Oh, Jesus, you missed it. Come on, that's obvious. Hello, he's crippled. He can't move his arms or his legs. But it was a term of compassion that Jesus looked at him. And he said, son, because when he looked at this young man, he, didn't, he wasn't clouded by the vision of the exterior. He wasn't clouded by the fact that he was, he was dressed as a, as a paralytic man or that he was on a, para, a, 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 a paralytic bed that he was lowered down on. That didn't cloud his vision. But when he looked at him that day, he saw his son. He saw his soul. He saw someone that he created and he looked down inside the depths of the heart and he looked down inside this man and he saw past the exterior. He saw past the symptoms. He saw past what everybody else saw and he saw a deeper issue. He saw what was, what was beyond what everybody else saw. And he says, your sins be forgiven. You still got to understand something. In the Hebrew culture that day, it was assumed that your problem physically was a result of your sin internally. When the disciples asked him the question about the blind man, Lord, who has sinned that this man is blind? Him or his parents? And in Hebrew culture, culture, in order for that man to be healed on the exterior, he had to be healed on the interior first. And Jesus saw past what everybody else saw. And what did they do? They began to murmur. They began to complain. Who do you think you are that you can forgive sins? Who do you think you are that, that you can speak to a man who, who's got an issue down inside of him and, and speak to that issue and, and, and say forgive it? No one can forgive sins but God. And if that's not a one God scripture, I don't know what is. No one can forgive sins but God. And he said that he forgave the man of his sins. And he says, but to prove to you that I am God. 
that I, the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And there all of a sudden, I imagine as this man began to stretch forth his arms and his legs and never began to watch what was going on, realizing that something started on the inside first and began to change the exterior. There are those of you that are here this morning. When you walked in this place, you were a wreck. You were a mess. People looked at you and thought, oh man, he's been tore up by this world. She's been tore up by the things of life. But you came to an altar and you wristed your hands and God began to do something on the inside of you. And we look at you today and you're not the same person that you were when you walked in that door. But God took you and changed you on the inside and it changed the outside of who you are. this man standing before you today me I still get people that I run into at the church I don't go to that apostolic church no more but I ran into a lady about six months ago I did a marriage conference for the apostolic church and she was probably in her late 60s, 70s she come walking up and she shook my hand she goes oh mijo I never thought she would serve God you were such a travieso. No hablas inglés, español. Troublemaker. You were such a troublemaker. Had I been judged by what I was on the exterior, God would have missed the opportunity to do something on the interior. And there are those of you that are sitting here this morning You've been complaining about your symptoms. You've been blaming this person. You've been blaming that person. You've been, you, you've been complaining about this and that that's going on in your life. If only I had this opportunity or, or if only that would have never happened to me and only this didn't happen to me. Friend, you've got to stop looking at all the symptoms in your life because God is here this morning. And I believe he brought me here this morning because he wants to do a work in the depths of your heart and your soul. I want the musician. God doesn't need to treat the symptom one more time. How many times do we sit through services like this and we do the old Holy Ghost huckabuck, you know? We feel the Spirit of God moving and we come up and we have what I call a cathartic move of God where we, we use up every tissue in the Kleenex box. We weep and we cry. And we're begging God to change my symptoms. When your pastor called me and it worked out that I was going to be here this Sunday, that next morning at 4 a.m. in prayer, he gave me the script. I've never preached this before. like God was talking to me. He said, I'm tired of working on the symptoms in my people. Because I know if all I ever do is touch their symptom, I'm never going to change their life. 
and you sit here this morning and just like those Pharisees and that doctor he was in the house to heal them he wasn't there to heal the lame man who was still down the road he wasn't there to touch and deliver and heal the person that was being carried on a mat still he was there to heal them touch your neighbor and say that means you I want you to stand right now with me all across this sanctuary. What good would it have done if Jesus would have spoke to that lame man and says, rise, take up your bed and walk, and he never forgave him of his sins. He would have addressed the symptom and that man would have walked out eternally paralyzed in his heart and his soul. It's not really about this life. It's about eternity that God wants to work on. And in order for you to make it to an eternity in heaven, not just you, but your kids. And some of you can't do this for you because you're so disgusted with you and you're so disgusted with your mate. But let me tell you something. There's another individual that's in your home and that's your children. And they're watching you. They're seeing what you do. And the thing that changed my life was to watch that alcoholic, drug addict dad go from that every weekend to go from the flying cups and the, and the saucers and the, and the breaking windows to hearing him. I thought something was wrong. I remember I walked in his room because I heard a noise and he was down on his knees his hands lifted up and he was praying to God and he was speaking in tongues and when I saw that I realized God you didn't just change a symptom when I watched my parents change their life it changed my life oh I want you to close your eyes bow your heads right now I feel the Holy Ghost here the Holy Ghost has been here this entire entire service Sir and ma'am, you are here right now. God has been moved. I've watched some of you. God's moved on you, but you haven't opened up. He's reaching to you, but you haven't unleashed it because you've been hurt so many times because deep down on the inside of who you are, you know there's issues and there's problems. How could God love me? How could I ever get through this? How could I ever get past this? I don't know. And I know that's not the answer you expected, but I know who does know. And he simply wants you this morning, if you're willing, to step out from where you're at and make your way down to this altar and say, God, I'm tired of dealing with the symptoms in my life. God, I'm tired of blaming other people, Lord, but I want you to reach down in the midst of who I am right now and change me change me the wonderful thing about the story of the lame man is this for all we know he might not have wanted to be healed he maybe didn't want to be healed but four friends said hey I know someone who can heal you and they picked him up that day and they took him to that house and they brought him in 
They had to make a way and they brought him, they lowered him down. There's some of you in this church this morning, you're too proud to step out from where you're at and say, I need help. But you have a spouse, you have a son, you have a daughter, you have this church body right now who I know is willing to take you by the hand and say, why don't you come with me? But before they do that, I want us just to all close our eyes right now. I want us to pray. Oh, God, in your name. Hallelujah. Oh, God, there is such a move of your presence in this sanctuary right now to do a work in the hearts and minds of individuals, oh, God. Oh, Lord, I pray right now you would help us to humble ourselves, oh, God, in your presence. And, Lord, be able to open ourselves up and accept what you have for us right now. Hallelujah, Jesus. I submit myself to what you want to do in this sanctuary. Change my life, Lord. Change my life. Friend, I want you to take the hand of the man or the person next to you right now. I want you to be that friend that leads them to this altar right now. You be a friend of that person right now and as an entire church. Why don't we feel this sanctuary up right now, this altar area. As you grab the hand of your friend and lead them out to this altar. As you make your way up here, I want you to begin to reach out and touch the Spirit of God that is here to heal. The Spirit of God that is here to change. The Spirit of God that is here right now in this sanctuary to not just deal with your symptom, but to deal with the cause. That's it. Come on, everybody in this place. You take somebody by the hand. You lead them to this altar. And when you get here, you begin to cry out, the Spirit of God, I need you. Oh, Lord, my family needs you, Lord. Oh, this church needs you, God. Oh, that's it. Come on, push your way up towards the front of the altar. There's still those trying to make their way in. God, touch us. Hallelujah, that's it. Oh, Lord. Hallelujah, that's it. You pray with that friend you brought.
place right now in some of your lives. Jesus, I need you.
want you to close your eyes right now. There's a sweet presence in this place that's still here that's doing a work. I feel like the Holy Ghost is leading me to do something and speak to people. There are things in your life, there are things in your marriage you have battled with repeatedly, not just month after month, but year after year. God doesn't want you to walk out of here with the power, the ability of the Holy Ghost to change with you working in conjunction with Him on that issue in your life. And I know this requires a certain level of humility. I'm not going to ask you what the issue is. But if you're humble enough to say, Brother Carr, that's me. There's things we've struggled with in my family. There's things we've struggled with in my life for years that I want to get rid of. I want you to raise your hand. Raise your hand. I want the rest of the body right now. I want you to find somebody with their hand raised around you. Come on, this is why God brought us into church. You find people around you with their hand raised right now. You begin to pray for them in the Holy Ghost. You don't know what their issue is, but the Spirit does. And as you pray for them in the Holy Ghost, as the Spirit leads you, there's going to be healing that flows from your lips into their spirit, that flows from your praise into their spirit, from your spirit to them, and you begin to pray for them right now. Hallelujah, that's it. Come on, that's it. He's here to break every chain, to break every bondage you've ever battled with. He's here to break it once and for all. You let go of that hurt. You let go of the revenge. You let go of the bitterness. You let go of the doubts. And you let go. 
about what God was doing in his life and said, hey, I'm going to worship with you. I'm going to proclaim the victory with you. Come on, church. I want you to find somebody next to you that you can rejoice with, that you can worship with because of the power. Come on, find your mates. Find your children. Find someone that you can worship with. fresh air and just know that there's something that God's doing on the inside that God is healing and strengthening and removing some things and restoring some things praise God hallelujah how many feel like God's done something here for you today just put your hands together give thanks to the Lord hallelujah 
Praise the Lord. Amen, amen. And we're so thankful for